Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. As we enter the book of Second Chronicles, let's talk a little bit more about the differences between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Those, the four books, the two Kings books and the two Chronicles books, cover much of the same material, but they cover them from a different perspective because Chronicles was written around a hundred years later than First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings dates to somewhere between. 560 to 550 BC. First and Second Chronicles dates to somewhere between 450 and 440 BC. So First and Second Chronicles has distance from the events and looks back on them with a much more theological perspective. There are three real differences between Kings and Chronicles. The author of Chronicles, who we call the Chronicler, focuses on David and Solomon, specifically on Solomon's reign. We don't actually talk directly in Second Chronicles about David, but we have a lot of reflection on whether other kings live up to the standard of David. David is covered in First Chronicles. The author of Chronicles also focuses on Judah. Once the nation of Israel splits, the chronicler really focuses in on the southern kingdom of Judah and that little mini-tribe that's remaining of Benjamin. And the chronicler focuses on restoration, what is needed for restoration, and then how, how it has happened. How do you get it, and how does it is it maintained? The book of Second Chronicles opens with the reign of Solomon, and it's a very idealized presentation of Solomon's reign. Much of the negative material that we hear about the king's David and Solomon in the books of First and Second Kings drops away. So we're interested now in remembering David and Solomon as the high watermarks for Israel, the standard to which we want to get back. It's meant to be inspirational and aspirational, and therefore David and Solomon's failures do not help us reach for that. So they just don't mention them. They omitted a lot of it. You can see this paralleling with 1 Kings 1 through 11, if you want to go back and compare the two. In chapter 1, the tabernacle is still at Gibeon, and Solomon goes to God. Solomon asks for wisdom. He receives it, and because he's asked for wisdom instead of power or money, he will get both power and money as additional added blessings. Israel at this point is really prospering under Solomon's rule, and the splendor of Solomon's kingdom surpasses even that of his father, David. In chapter 2, Solomon's going to prepare to build the temple. We remember that David wanted to build a house for God, but God said, no, that your son will be the one to build me a house to live in. Because David was a man of war, Solomon is going to be a man of peace. Not entirely peaceful, but that's a a generalization of them. He goes and makes an alliance with Huram of Tyre. 
This is the same person referred to as Hiram of Tyre in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. They're going to have a conscripted labor force. These are the foreigners who are living amongst the people in the promised land. Remember, they were supposed to completely evict the people who were already in the promised land, the Canaanites. They don't. And so now the people living amongst them become um, a slave labor force for them. There are 153,600 people involved as slave labor. 70,000 of them will be general laborers. 80,000 will be stone cutters because the temple will be a massive structure made of enormous stones. And 36,000 of them will be supervisors to make sure the work is being done as God has given the instructions to Solomon. In chapter 3, Solomon actually begins building the temple. Chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 1 constitute the next section of this book. There's a formal introduction and a very similar conclusion to this section. In case you're curious, a cubit is 18 inches or about a foot and a half. And you may want to calculate the dimensions of the temple. The description of the temple moves from the outside in. So from the outer description to the most central point, which is the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Then it goes back to what is in front of the temple. So the pillars, the large bronze altar, the large and small basins for washing, for washing all the things that are necessary for the sacrificial system and the utensils. There is exorbitant wealth involved in the building of this temple. Gold covers almost everything, even the nails that are used to attach things. In verse 17, we're told that the pillars are named. The name of the right pillar is Jachin, and the left pillar is Boaz. And if there are, if there's a greater significance to the names, We're not told this information, and if they serve any purpose other than just being decorative, we're not told that either. In chapter 4, we continue to describe the temple. The altar has no decoration. It exists for function, not form. Sacrifices happen out of necessity, not out of pleasure. Um, There is sin that has to be absolved and a sacrifice at this point in the in the people's growth and understanding of God's relationship with them requires the sacrifice of animals. So it is function, not form. We have something described as the sea. This is the large basin for washing, and it holds 3,000 baths. A bath was a volume measure. It is the equivalent of 5.8 gallons. So this sea holds 17,435 gallons of water. In other words, it's the size of a swimming pool. It's enormous, and it's going to be required as we have so much sacrifice happening in this area. We move into chapter 5, and with verse 1, this section is complete. The temple is finished, and so that's the conclusion. Remember that we added chapters and verses much later after all of this was written down. And there are times when we would have divided those chapters and verses differently if we were doing that now. If we were putting those in now, chapter 5 verse 1 would probably be the last verse of chapter 4 as it is a conclusion rather than a beginning. 
We move on into chapter 5, and now we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant from where it is being kept in Zion, which is also called the City of David, and it's going to be placed between two cherubim. The cherubim are enormous angel statues. They are 30 feet wide and with enormous wings. Um, this would be a very intimidating sight. This is in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. It would have been completely shrouded in darkness. There would have been no artificial light that gets into this area at all. So the only lighting would come from lamps when you carried a, a candle or a lamp in. Um, and the high priest goes into this area once a year to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the, the lid of it, which is called the mercy seat, for the atonement of the nation's sins. And so when you went in and your light hits this, the darkened room lights up with these enormous 30-foot angels covered in gold that would have shined, and it would have been a very intimidating sight. They will also bring the pieces of the tabernacle. Now that there's a temple, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting that they used in the wilderness is no longer necessary. It will be taken down. It's part stored in the temple. And as they bring the ark and the tabernacle, they are sacrificing animals all along the way. We're told that the two tablets that God gave Moses on the mountain are placed inside the ark. If you remember from our earlier reading, they had also placed Aaron's rod that budded in the ark. There's no mention of it here. So somewhere along the way, that staff has been taken out and it seems to have been misplaced and won't be heard from again. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. So the cloud presence settles on the temple when it is dedicated. Remember when God's people were traveling through the wilderness, that God led them as a pillar of cloud by the day and a pillar of fire at night. So the cloud presence represents the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. And so God has moved in to God's house. Chapter 6 describes the dedication ceremony that they hold. It started with that parade of the ark coming through. And now in chapter 6, verse 1, we have the first mention of the thick darkness, that there will be no natural light in certain areas of the temple. There is a very long dedication prayer that is offered. And this prayer represents the midpoint of the story of Solomon's reign in the book of Second Chronicles. So this becomes the, the peak, the climax of Solomon's um, role that he plays in the history of the people. We're told that Solomon prays kneeling with his arms outstretched. There are many postures of prayer that we find in Scripture. There's prostate laying flat, face down on the ground. They're standing with head bowed. They're standing and kneeling with your face looking up or your face looking down, eyes opened or closed, hands folded or arms outstretched. It depends on why you're praying, the mood and the attitude with which you're coming to God. But there are many ways to show reverence and to approach God in prayer. For this one, Solomon kneels to show submission and outstretches his arms in celebration, welcome, and openness. His prayer surveys the past, petitions for the future, and invokes God's presence and authority over all of it. 
In chapter 7, after Solomon's prayer, fire descends and consumes the offering that they put placed on the altar. This, by the way, is a precursor for Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal that we've already heard about in the books of Kings, um, that fire descends and consumes. This is why Elijah could have said with confidence that the fire of God would descend and consume his offering. We now have both forms representing God's presence. Remember, cloud of pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night as they travel through the wilderness. Now, the cloud presence has moved in to the temple, has descended and filled the temple, and the fire presence has descended and received or accepted their sacrifice. God has fully moved in to the house that they have built for God. The the festival continues for seven days. There are sacrifices, there are songs and music, and there are so many sacrifices. The volume of sacrificing requires that they expand the area for cooking. And we see that in verse 7. We don't often think when we read through all of this about sacrifices that all of this would have been cooked. So if you think about Passover, if you think about Sabbath sacrifices, new moon sacrifices that happen in the temple, the meat, the animal is sacrificed. Certain parts of it are burned on the altar as a, as a sacrifice to be consumed for God. Other portions are given to the priests and the priestly families um, for their meals, for their, because remember, they don't have an inheritance of land. So they inherit a portion as part of the um, compensation for their labor in the temple. But then the people, the, the ones who brought the animal to sacrifice, also go home with portions of meat to eat from the sacrifice. This for me makes the sacrificial system just a little bit more palatable in that as they killed an animal for food, they were also recognizing that that animal was dying for them and that that could represent forgiveness of sins and that sin was a a serious thing that had to be atoned for. So it all kind of gets mixed together. But during the festival, they sacrifice all these animals and they cook them. So it it becomes a big feast. It becomes a big barbecue as well. Uh, This is most likely an observance of the Festival of Tabernacles. If you want to read more about that and review it, look in Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 43, and Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. This was the what reminded them that they had left Egypt and they had to, to tabernacle, to live in temporary places. It seems fitting that we would remember that we um, wandered in the desert, that we had no home, that it is in God that we find our home and our place, our permanent dwelling place in the afterlife. And so they celebrate that as they dedicate the temple. This happens in late September or early October on our calendar today. And the names of the month were changed after the exile. So what here is called the month of Ethanum is called the month of Tishri later, and it is still called Tishri today on the Jewish calendar. So God comes back and returns to Solomon, affirms his relationship with him, reminds him that obedience is required and that there are consequences. 
there are consequences for obedience. That's called blessing. And there are consequences for disobedience. That would be punishment. And in chapter 8, Solomon is going to expand his realm. He's going to conquer and enlarge his territory, and they're going to prosper, and things are going to get better. And that takes us through First Chronicles chapters 1 through 8. <music> 